Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season four of Talking with Traders with me, Garth McKenzie. It's been a lengthy hiatus since we completed season three of this series, so it's good to be back. Thank you to IG Markets for once again coming on board to fund and sponsor this podcast. Their involvement is hugely valuable, and we're proud to have such an award-winning CFD provider alongside us. In this season, I'll welcome back some of our most popular guests from previous seasons to get their updated views on the markets, and I'll also bring in some new guests too. I'll be asking them pertinent questions about how they trade the market and where they're seeing opportunities in the global trading and investing arena. The idea is that you, the listener, gain some valuable insight and education from these market professionals that may be of use in your own trading and investing. So with that in mind, let's get straight into this week's episode of Talking with Traders. For this episode of Talking with Traders, I'm delighted to welcome back a previous guest who appeared on season two of the Talking with Traders podcast series in 2020. His name is Stephen Goldstein. He is the uh, co-founder of Alpha R Cubed, which he runs with his partner, Mark Randall. And he's also the host of the Alpha Mind podcast. Now, if you haven't listened to that podcast, you really should. It's an absolutely excellent podcast series. I make it uh, a, a must listen every month when one of Stephen's new podcasts come out. And Stephen also runs a trader performance coaching program. And I've actually been a delegate on that program over the last year and a bit. So it's really great to welcome you back onto this podcast, Stephen. And I'm looking forward to chatting to you from the perspective now of being a delegate on your trader performance coaching program and a trader who's really benefited from that program and from all of your podcasts over the last two years or so. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great, yes. great to be here. Super. Well, it's super to have you and it's super to, to be speaking to you again. You and I uh, have been engaging with one another over the last 14 or 15 months, given the, the, thereabouts. Uh, and because of the COVID pandemic, we had only ever seen each other over Zoom calls previously, but we actually, I, I had the privilege of meeting you for lunch in London last week, which was a, a wonderful time. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you again for the lunch. Um, let's take us with this podcast forward now, Stephen. Uh, yeah, I mentioned in the intro that I've done your trader performance coaching program, and I've found it hugely beneficial uh, for, for my own trading, for my mindset, etc. A lot of people might look at coaching and say, well, why do you need a coach? If you're such a good trader, why do you need a coach? What, what do you say to that? I say the, the same thing, really, you'd say to a sports person, if you, if you put that question to them, you know, if you're such a good tennis player, um, Novak Djokovic or Roger Federer, why would you need a coach? It's exactly yeah. the same thing. That the, the coach is there to help them um, get better, to help them uh, stay at the top, to give them feedback that keeps them at their very best um, and, and works with them in many ways to help them improve and finesse their game. Yeah, yeah. Okay, super. And and that's it. I mean, every professional sportsman has a coach and often they have more than one coach. They They might have... Uh, a fitness coach, a psychological coach, a couple of other coaches that also fit into the fold behind these professional sports people. And even though even though they're the best in the world, as you say, uh, um, Novak Djokovic, Roger, Roger Federer, they all have a, a whole host of coaches around them. Uh, so absolutely, why not have one for trading? And I've certainly experienced that being on the other side of it, that your, your uh, trader performance coaching program has been immensely helpful in in helping me to unblock certain mental blockages I've had along the way and to improve my performance overall. Uh, and, and one thing that I must just say to the listeners who, who are listening to this, you know, the coaching program is not a case of of you showing me how to trade. You know, I think everybody that comes on your program knows how to trade. They've got their system. They've got their edge already. They know what they're doing but it's really to try and enhance the performance of those traders. So in other words, you're not you know, sitting there showing me how to do technical analysis or teaching me what an oversold chart looks like. It's, it's, it's a much higher level than that. It's psychological coaching. It's understanding 
blind spots in in my own personality and trying to effectively work with with, with what I have I guess as as an individual and that's what I've really found very very helpful from your um, from your, your your training one of the things that you start out your program with is a couple of assessments. Uh, you've got a risk type assessment, a personality assessment, and then a thing called the luminous spark personality assessment. Uh, and all of these things I found really beneficial. They're quite, it's quite a lengthy testing process that you go through. It's quite uh, mentally taxing, actually. It takes quite a while, quite a few hours to go through all of these tests. But what I found that came out of it at the end is that it, it identifies your personality type and from there, you then get to know the delegate on the trader, the, the performance uh, program. And then from that point onwards, I guess you're able to, to identify who they are, what they're like, what their personality is like. But to that extent, you know, how, how important is it to match your personality to your trading style? I think it's absolutely crucial. It's, um, you know, it, it, it's not an easy thing to do, but you know, if if I, t- I tend to find that it's if you're not working in ways which bring that that utilize your best strengths, that it's most problematic. So you, you're not you're not ever going to get an exact overlay. Um, but I, I always like to use the analogy of of physique, um, you know, and to look at it in that same sense. So if, if we're built in a certain physical way we're more likely to succeed in certain sports or certain attributes of a sport. So, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're over six foot tall, there's no point trying to become a jockey. Um, You know, you, you, you might, you might try it and enjoy it, but you're going to be at such a disadvantage. It's the same with, you know, athletics, you know, or or basketball, say, if you're short under, say, you know, five and a half foot, you're going to really struggle. It doesn't mean you won't be good at basketball and there may even be niches. There have been shorter basketball players, but it just makes it that much harder. Harder. Um, I, I always think the best way of looking at it is the analogy of athletics. If you decide you want to become a runner, if you're built powerfully for athletics, you're best off being a sprinter. If you're quite tall and quite sort of long-limbed, You'd be much better going into um, into marathon running or long distance running, and that's because you're you're more likely to, in a way, that you, your natural benefits are likely to come out and give you an edge when you're competing in those fields. And it's it's the same in trading. Every single personality type has an edge, and every single person personality type has blind spots and vulnerabilities um, that can undermine them. So if you're working in the most congruent way in the way you trade you're more likely to to it becomes a marginal edge and it's really all the marginal edges we have that add up and allow us to actually have a definable edge Mm, yeah super what what i found about that uh, personality assessment in the beginning of of your program was that it, it, it first of all that luminous spark assessment is very very comprehensive it, it gives you a i got a 41 page report back on my personality with all sorts of metrics and uh, different aspects of my personality i was amazed at, at how accurate it was i mean it really did seem to nail my personality absolutely per- perfectly what I found helpful about that was that it yeah i guess i know my personality we all should know our personalities but it was quite, kind of helpful to actually see it written down scientifically from a proper psychologically qualified person who's, you know, and, and identified the various different attributes of my personality so that I could say, well, yeah, actually, you know, I, I'm that type of person. I'm, I'm not the other type of person. And I think what, what it did for me is not only help me to know my personality type, but it also really helped to know who I'm not. And to that extent, I think that's also been immensely helpful in my own trading. Because through your experience with so many different traders, you you obviously see different personality types. And every personality type can be successful in trading, but not every personality type matches every other trading style. And that's something that I found very interesting. You know, my, my personality style 
is is someone who I'm not particularly good at scalping, for example. I'm not an intraday trader. It's not something I'm particularly good at. And whenever I've found that I try and do that in my work, it's generally very frustrating. And it's it, I, I've not done well in that. My, t- my style of trading is more sort of position trading. I hold positions for a couple of days to a couple of weeks, maybe even a couple of months at a time. And that very much tied in with the, the personality type that I got feedback from your, um, from your assessments. And on the other hand, you know, I know of other traders because also in my work, I, I deal with traders as well. And I've seen guys who are very good intraday traders, very good scalpers who very fast with the buttons to be able to capture intraday movements. And I've noticed how their personalities differ from, from mine. So I think to that extent, the point I'm really trying to make is that knowing your personality is one thing. It's great to know what your personality is, but it's also very, very helpful to know what your personality is not. And then to try and marry the two together. And that's, that's where I found your, your program really helpful is that it's actually, I've, I've, I've learned exactly this types of trading styles to avoid for myself and to focus on the types of styles that I know fit with my personality. So from a, a delegate's perspective, that's been very, very helpful. You mentioned in the in the conversation a moment ago that you shine a light on the blind spots. Can you just give us a little bit more insight into what you mean by that, Stephen? Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, a, a way to look at it is that we, we're all we all have certain strengths and certain qualities that enable us to excel, um, and, and they become clear edges in, in the, when we're out there in the world of trading. And we also have elements about us which which make us vulnerable, and different personalities have different elements that. And you can think of these vulnerabilities as blind spots um, that, that manifest in any any number of ways. You know, from from whether you're leaving yourself vulnerable to some sort of short-term risk or or just leaving yourself incapable of doing something that is required by a particular system or method. So let, let me give you an example if I go back to my trading days. Mm. So sort of in the dim and distant past, I, I created a, a, a trading system that I was looking at for trading government bonds. Um, this was back in the, in the 1990s when I was on the, the prop desk of an investment bank. And it, I, 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 I tested it, back-tested it, cleaned up the data and found a fantastic um, moving average crossover rate with government bond futures, a uh, moving average crossover method. That It looked like it performed really well historically. And I decided that, you know, on one level, I thought, well, I could run this and apply this at work. And then I thought, hold on a minute, let's imagine myself actually running those, that trading book, those trading model, that system, and what it would be like for someone like me who, who doesn't enjoy being offside for a long time, um, underwater. And that, that particular method was underwater a lot of the time. You know, it, it would always turn, always move back into profit, but it could be out the money for months. And when it was in the money, it it would go up and then it would give back its a lot of its profit as it came back to walk the moving averages cross back. And then you were sort of in a situation where you were up a lot and you were going to give back money. Now, that didn't suit my personality. I, I don't trade like that. And I never have done. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to run this sort of system. Even though it looks great, it needs someone, probably more like a, a, a Garth McKenzie, if I'm honest, <laughs> who's able to stand back and put some distance, you know, between him and what he's doing in his work and and not as flustered by volatility and noise. Um, And I then thought my managers are not going to be able to run this either because as as the particular bank, the way we worked, the way they traded, the way they viewed the market, it didn't really fit in with their risk culture. So we all have our own personal risk culture. So that's one way of looking at, vulnerabilities do we match up to the approach we're taking another way is you know knowing where you're your strongest and where you're weakest but also sometimes you can overuse your strengths um and that makes us vulnerable so a lot of people i meet in the markets are highly competitive but they actually under pressure become too competitive and that 
advantage of being competitive suddenly becomes a disadvantage of winning at all costs. And often that cost is veering away from your process and not doing what's optimal for, for you, your method, your system, your approach. So, so the, the vulnerabilities can come out of your strengths or be the opposite of your strengths. And it's really important to know where they are and how they're going to impact what you're doing or how they are impacting what you're doing. Mm, superb. Following on from that, you mentioned the word process, and I want to talk a bit about playbook because this is something that you've introduced me to during the um, the, the program. And it's the idea of having a playbook, which I guess it's something I always kind of knew about before. Um, I always just referred to it as a, as a trading plan. I like the word playbook, which is the word that you've kind of coined for um, for trading. And it's essentially, it's like your, your user manual or your instruction manual for how you trade. And I've, done, I've spent time going through my playbook and actually developing a proper formal playbook for myself to just determine what I'm going to trade, when I'm going to trade, how I'm going to trade. And what it is essentially is a it's a it's a list of setups. Uh, I'm a technical trader, so therefore I'm looking at various different different technical analysis setups, which have a fairly high probability of repeating in the markets. And then you overlay those things with um, with risk management, stop losses, position sizing, etc. I found that very very helpful. And and you you're a big proponent, obviously, of this idea of a playbook. Um, in your experience of of dealing with all sorts of traders as you do. Do you find that the, those who who have a very rigid playbook are more successful or is there a variety? Do, you know, does not everybody need a playbook or do you think it's an absolute must if you want to be successful in this business? Well, I, I think we all have playbooks in our head um, or, or most of us do uh, of various forms. But actually thinking about what your playbook is, it, it makes it more tangible, more real. And, and and you're often able to refine it if you start to think about it. So, you know, a lot of people just go into trading, they think it's a system, a method. But a playbook is so much more. It's it's also how you're going to take risk, how you're going to use your capital, how you're going to manage risk, thinking of what-if scenarios for when you've got the trade on. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases, I meet people that have a very sophisticated playbook or even set of playbooks because – you know, there's people who have playbooks for different conditions and different types of markets. And there's some people who it just exists in their head. Um, and I think all of us have that playbook in our head. But actually, writing a few bits down um, can really be useful in helping you understand, well, what is my playbook? You know, what type of play- conditions suit me? What type of markets suit me? When should I stay away? When should I venture in? So, you know, it's a really good exercise to do to to start actually thinking about you know where where am i best where am i not best um i mean i i you know i still trade not for a living anymore but for a bit of fun um and i have i i wouldn't say i list it down but i have a number of guidelines which i always follow and they are written down and i've always written them down even when i go back to my trading and those guidelines gave me um, a kind of outline for my playbook. And later on in my in my training career, they started to form what were actual playbooks, although they weren't in, in the form that I, I talk about them now. Um, but but it, it helps you know where you are. It gives you like a roadmap mm-hmm. um, for when you're, I mean, we're faced with uncertainty all the time. And if we don't have it and we stay outside our playbook, we often find that's when we're giving money back. Even if we have a good idea on a trade, if the trade doesn't suit our playbook, then really we shouldn't take it. Mm. It it becomes a filter mechanism as well. There's there's lots of different elements to it. Yeah, I'm smiling to myself here because, as you say, you take trades that are outside of your playbook and very often that's where you come short. And, And you mentioned about a lot of people having a playbook in their head which is fine. Uh, I think a lot of us do that, but writing it down, actually having it formally documented, I, I found hugely beneficial. And what I've found quite often, Stephen, is I'll I'll look at a setup and I might think, mm, that looks interesting or that. And, and then I kind of go to put the trade on. And then I think to myself, hang on a second, 
is this uh, in my playbook? And quite often, every, every strategy in my playbook has a number, strategy one, strategy two, three, et cetera. Um, and often I'll then say to myself, hang on a second, which number strategy does this trade setup apply to? And I can't marry it to any of the strategies. And that kind of then stops me and say, oh, hang on a second. Well, then if it's not in the playbook, why are you doing this trade? You know, are you doing it because you feel you need to be involved? You're looking, you're seeking action. What's the reason? And it's very often actually stopped me in my tracks and prevented me from putting on trades that are not in the playbook. Um, and, and something else I want to talk about now leading on from this is the, the idea of journaling, because as much as the playbook is written down, in my case, and I guess it should be written down and documented formally for, for those who want to really take their trading seriously, journaling is also something that I think is very important. And I've begun, since, since doing your program, I've actually begun to journal very, very thoroughly every day. And on the weekend, I've got a long, probably about a three, four hour process over the weekend of journaling. And then every day doing some journaling as well. It's, it's quite time consuming, but the advantages of doing it, I'm finding absolutely uh, huge. Talk to us a little bit about journaling and the importance of that. But to, to me, journaling is, it's one of those things that, you know, people don't like doing. It, it, it's not generally something that's considered very, um, very masculine mm. and a lot of people who trade um, obviously it's changing a little bit in recent years but it, it, it attracts a lot more men than women um, it, it's something that people find time consuming and a bit boring and dull mm. um, but in many respects I, I, I use people I try and equate that to someone who wants to get fit but doesn't want to go to the gym the gym work is quite boring and dull and not very interesting but if you want to get fit if you want to develop your body if you want to build muscles you know, if you're a sports person, often you go to the gym to strengthen certain muscle groups. And the sports people hate doing that. Mm. They just want to practice and play, you know, <laughs> and, and do what they like. But in many respects, it's the really important part. You know, it's the same with, you know, sports people want to go out and eat what they want. They don't want to do the nutrition and the good nutrition <laughs> part of it. Um, but again, it's one of those things that makes a, a marginal, you know, it's one of those marginal edges that add up to a huge edge. So, you know, it's, it, so first of all, it's a little bit like that. Secondly, it, you know, it, it forms so many functions, you know, I mean, you could even make it part of your playbook or wrap your playbook in your journal. You know, there's, you know, you can have a separate one. I know some people who write their playbook separately and, and refer to it separately. I used to put my guidelines when I was trading in my journal at the front of everyone. So in a way I had a kind of what, what, I might now call a playbook at the front of each journal. And it was just a normal A4, A4 booklet where I used to put in my trade ideas, my analysis, um, my thoughts about markets, but also review my trading. Um, you know, what went well, what wasn't going well, what do I need to do better? But I, I think one of, one of the biggest, um, one of the most important moments in my trading career came from one day when I decided to look back during a quiet period over some of my journals over the years, and I noticed behaviors that I was completely unaware of. And I, I thought it was one off. And then I started looking through my journal and finding that this was something I was doing all the time. And it was basically something very simple. that I was writing down a, a kind of some parameters for the day's trade. So, you know, there might be, I might say, I'm going to put a bid here or an offer here in the market if it gets to these levels. And then I noticed I wasn't doing it. Um, and then what I'd noticed was that I was moving them to try and be a bit cute and a bit clever, get a few extra points. And then I noticed by looking at what the price action had done at those times, that actually the first levels I picked were really good. And the seven le le levels I picked when I was trying to be cute weren't good at all. And often I actually missed getting into what was a really good trade. And then I would chase the trade a lot later, a lot later because I wasn't in it and I wanted to be in it. And then I'd get into it at suboptimal levels and often get stopped out of it. So I'd leave a lot of money on the table through doing this behavior, but I wasn't even conscious that I was doing that behavior. Mm. So the journal helps reveal things. You know, it's got so many different uses and functions. Um, if you can make it habitual and get over 
over some of the hurdles. Yeah, that's it's interesting, and I, I find it exactly the same. You know, occasionally you journal or you put something, put a level down, and then you get you try and get cute, and the market moves away. And your initial thinking was actually uh, was the right thinking. What I've tended to start doing is after my weekend journaling, which is quite a thorough process, is actually I identify levels, um, and then I'll actually rather than putting orders in the market because you don't always know, but go and set alerts at those levels. So say if this stock or this index trades at a particular price level, I want to be alerted to the fact that it's there. And then at that stage, I'll make a decision whether to execute a trade or not. But it it helps because I've done all of that journaling and all of that thinking outside of the market hours and over the weekend. So there's no markets open to distract me at that time. And you get the clearest thought uh, during that time when the markets are closed. And then you can basically apply that clear thinking when the market is open. So you've kind of got a plan, a roadmap, as you called as you called it for when the markets are open. And then it's a case of just executing that plan in accordance with what your uh, clear-minded thinking process was. What I've also liked about what you said about um, journaling and being a, being part of the process, but being boring, I guess in, in likening it again to fitness and the fact that if you want to get fit or you want to be a professional sportsman, there are various different habit stacking things you need to do. So obviously one is hitting the gym, another is correct nutrition, another is getting the right amount of sleep, another might be getting the right amount of hydration in your body. Because at the end of the day, trading is also a performance sport in a way. It's a mental game, mental performance sport. And to that extent, you need to make sure that your brain is in top, top, top condition so that you're making the right decisions. And Something I've included in my trading journals each day is exactly those types of things. I write down how many hours of sleep did I get the night before? Um, how well hydrated am I? Am I? Um, also put on a, on a scale of one to 10, emotional outlook or feeling. Let's just say, call it your, how do I feel on a scale of one to 10? How do I feel? Like today we're talking to each other, the blue sky outside, it's a good day. Uh, I feel like an eight out of 10 today. Not every day that I feel that way. But it's interesting to then look at that over time because by journaling all of this kind of information day in and day out, you actually build up a data set which you can then analyze over time. And it's quite interesting to then marry the correlation between certain of these measurable aspects, these physiological aspects, and how your trading is, is going. And it's remarkable, the correlation. If you're feeling good, you tend to trade better, you get better results. And I guess it's all self-perpetuating, isn't it? You, you, if you're feeling good, you've, you've come into the market in a, in a, in a, in a tip, top condition, mentally, physically, you're likely to do better, aren't you? Oh, 100%. Again, it's, you know, it's, it's that, <laughs> you know, that, that it's a performance job. Yeah. It's a performance activity. It's not an academic activity. Um, far too many people make that error. Um, maybe, maybe there's an academic activity in the analysis and understanding of of markets and, say, economics or even price action. But at, at its core, it's, um, it's, it's a performance activity. And like any performance activity, you know, it, it depends on you. You are the performer. And your ability to make good decisions, to be optimal, um, to be resilient, to avoid letting bad outcomes control and dictate you and to, to let good, good outcomes play out, it, it comes down to your, your being. So we've got, you know, again, the, these, these are important edges. And, and for some people I know who are fantastically successful, this, this is really important to them. Mm, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about emotions in trading. Um, on the last podcast that I did with you, you made a very interesting point and you dispelled the myth that all good traders have no emotions. So there's a, a, a widely held school of thought out there that if we could all behave like robots with no emotion, we'd be better traders. You said on, on the previous podcast that I did with you, you disagree with that. And in fact, that some of the best traders that you encounter are very emotional beings but they seem to understand their emotions and they're in touch with them. Let's just talk a little bit about emotions in trading and how you can use them to your advantage, I guess, Stephen. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it, it, it's not that, you know, I mean, it, it would be nice in many ways to not. So, see, one of the things is that we're all familiar with the idea of our emotions running out of control and us making bad decisions. Um, and probably most traders would have, would have experienced that. We'd have been gripped by fear at times, uh, maybe in the face of some of the markets recently, even gripped by terror. Um, you know, at the same time, we're also aware that we, we sometimes get greedy and overplay our hand. Um, we also suffer shame as well. These are all emotions which, which happen. Now, it, it kind of, the, the idea what the people who say about this idea of not having emotions, it, it assumes that we can be a robot. We can go into a robot state, which we can't. We have emotions. That's how we function. Mm. That's who we are. You know, we, we can try and systemize things to take them away from us so that our emotions don't interfere. But if you do systemize things, you 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 have a different type of system there. And there's even emotions in, in building a system. I suppose in a way I described earlier on, a system that I, I built but felt that I wasn't emotionally going to be able to sustain running that. It didn't gel with me. Um, you know, we, we are human that's you know we are emotional beings that's how we are so you can either pretend you don't have them which is futile or you can understand them or work with them and and, and you know some people are much more emotional than others they're usually very good short-term traders um they can be very good decision makers in highly volatile situations fast markets i was just talking to someone this morning who is what would be deemed a highly emotional trader but he was telling me of some, you know, he's done really well over the last few weeks in these, in these highly stressed markets. Um, he was telling me the night before the invasion in the Russian invasion into Ukraine, he went home short of oil, um, quite a big short position on oil. And then he didn't know why, but he couldn't sleep that night. You know, he could not settle. And he was up and down all night long, which was unusual for him. And eventually he got up at three o'clock and decided, I don't know what it is. I'm just squaring this position out. Something doesn't sit right. Now, that might sound ridiculous, but, it, you know, he ended up squaring out a huge position short of oil an hour before the Russians invaded. <laughs> and the, the, there was just, you know, the, the, some people just have almost uh, an uncanny intuitive ability at times like that. And it, it comes from being highly emotional. He also happened to um, make a trading decision in the past few weeks around some huge emissions trade that his company had on that saved them $50 million. And it was, you know, they, they, they were caught badly in the market. And he just said, no, we're going to sit with this. We're going to wait for the right time. And it almost got to the second the optimum time to get out and it saved them 50 million dollars now that is almost uncanny mm. but i know the guy i've worked with him for a long time and he, he's he uses his emotions to time his decision making um he doesn't sit back he doesn't ignore them he listens to them he also has a process wrapped around it so let, let's not pretend that emotions are the you know we know that they could lead us astray at times. You know, we mustn't just rely on our intuition. It must all be wrapped around a process. Um, there must be strong risk management. There must be a set of rules. But he's able to bring the two together in a really powerful way, which, which, which helps him make good decisions. And I work with a lot of people like that. On the other hand, I work with some other people who are able to sit back and, and step back from the market and not let, not let, not let their emotions overwhelm them and get some distance between the market. Mm. But they do use their emotions in their decision-making. They listen to it. They listen to, you know, when they're doing research, what, you know, uh, we get attracted to certain um, pieces of information or certain news. And that, that's really our emotions deciding what's attractive to us and then leading us to really think about those, you know, a lot more. We cannot separate ourselves from our emotions. It's physically impossible. Mm. So actually try working with them, try understanding them. And that's also part of the, the understanding of your personality at the same time. You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG. 
a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. Yeah, it's like something you said to me once that trying to lose your emotions is like trying to lose your shadow. Uh, you just can't do it. Yeah, your emotions yeah. are there, whether you like it or not, they're there. So you better learn how to how to deal with them. I also yeah. love that story you were just telling now about the the, the trader with um, the oil position and and the intuition. I mean, I, I guess that's I suppose what Mark Douglas referred to in his in his second book. I think it was his second book, Trading in the Zone. You know, when you get to that level uh, of intuition, you're in the zone. And it also reminds me of the, the book by Malcolm Gladwell called Blink, which is all oh, about yes. that. It's all about intuition. And he calls it thin slicing, where from one teeny tiny little data set or piece of information, you know, experienced experts in different fields can, can make a decision, which is the right decision based purely on, on intuition. And I guess that's also uh, understanding your emotions as well then. Um, yeah. Yeah, go on. I was going to say that, yeah, the, 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 the book by Malcolm Gladwell, Blink, was inspired by the work of, um, of, of a psychologist, um, Gary Klein, who we had on the, I had on the podcast last year. And it's fascinating to read his work uh, and to understand what he does. It's written in quite an academic way. But he's done a lot of work with intuition and how it impacts decision making. Um, and really, at the, you know, at the root of where we talk trading is a performance activity. We are decision makers in real time. You know, it, it, it's it, it's real world. It's not theoretical. Mm. You know, our, our decisions have consequences. We're going to make lots of decisions which are which are, are, are right, and we're going to make lots of decisions that are wrong. And if we wait for the actual right moment and verification of our decision, it's going to be too late. So we have to kind of make what I call educated guesses, mm. okay? And you are the person doing that. You are the performer doing that. And a lot of what we talk about, you know, the, 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 the work of, um, of uh, <laughs> Douglas. Um, Mark Douglas. Mark Douglas, okay. Mm. You know, he talks about that a lot. And it's, you know, I, I call it getting into an ideal trader state, mm. okay? You, you can, an ideal trader state is, you know, we're, as I say, we all make bad decisions, we're all vulnerable of going on to tilt, um, you know, and there's winner's tilt and loser's tilt. That's tilt after you have a good win where you get a bit sloppy. And we're all capable of being in the zone. And in the zone doesn't always mean making money. It means getting out of a really bad situation mm. in a really good way. Okay. So, yeah. you know, trading is not on absolute. And the closer you can get to this ideal trader state where you understand how you are, you understand your emotions, you understand your strengths, you understand your vulnerabilities, you understand the type of conditions that the market, you know, works for you best and doesn't work for you because you've got a playbook and a structure. The closer you're going to, the more likely you're going to be in that ideal trader state, which allows you to go into the zone and, and allows you to recover from tilt very quickly, as opposed to suboptimal state, suboptimal trader state, which is the other side of that where I, I, I try and get people away from, but most traders are there most of the time. Most of them exist in a suboptimal trading state. And when you're in that suboptimal trading state, you are owned by the market. You are owned by your fears. You are owned by greed. You are owned by a lack of structure. And when you're in an ideal trader state, the opposite situation is happening. You are owning everything you're doing. Okay, you cannot own the market, but you can own yourself or you can be owned by the market and you don't want to be the latter one. Yeah, no, you certainly don't. Also to, to that point, uh, getting to that level of, of intuition and being in the zone, I mean, it takes a lot of time. And I think this is something that a lot of retail traders out there don't appreciate just the amount of time and effort and practice that it takes to get to this point. Yeah, I, I come across a lot of retail traders in my work who want to take this on full time. They want to become professional traders, but they've they've not done the time. They've maybe been trading for a year or two. It's just not enough time, is it? You need to really, really spend thousands of hours in front of the market, in front of charts, in front of 
the screens, I guess, to develop that level of intuition and that that feeling of being at one with the market. Not so. Yeah, yeah. Mm. With, with that's it. I mean, that that is where we're trying to get to. You know, we yeah. if we can align ourselves with the market, like you said, to become at one with the market, that that is in the zone. Yeah, and and that you know that's what Mark Douglas talks about, and that's you know it's incredibly hard to get there, but you know if you can get there, incredible things happen. Yeah. So you can be amazed at what you do. Yes, but you're right; it takes many years to get there. You know, I I, I you know I sometimes flippantly talk about this, but you know if you want to become a, a world champion boxer, okay, or, or even not a world champion, but a high level professional boxer who earns their living from boxing. It's going to take many years to get there, mm. you know, and you're going to get beaten up quite a bit along the way. Um, you're going to suffer setbacks and periods of self-doubt. Um, but if you start, if you decide, you know, tomorrow I'm going to start boxing. I've never boxed in my life. I watched people do it. It looks easy. I think I can do it. And you expect to be earning a living from boxing anytime in the next, next few years where then, you know, it, it, that's a ridiculous statement. And the same goes for trading. You know, it's, it, it, take it seriously, guys. It's a, it's a multi-year um, journey to become a trader. And you're stepping out there in the world with against champion traders. Now, with a bit of luck, you might make some money earlier in your career, especially if you start off with a trading method or a system that, say, does well in a bull market, and we get a bull market, as we've had, as we had uh, much of the time over the last few years. And that can fool you into thinking, you know, I can do this job. I can make it as a trader. I'm making money. No, you, you've got to be able to survive a bear market. You've got to be able to work in conditions where the market isn't giving you anything at all, where it's just stuck in a sideways range. Uh, and, you know, you, you trade in all environments. You adapt. That's what trading is. And I think a lot of people who found it really easy in the bull market, you know, a lot of them aren't even around anymore. They've already been taken out. Mm. Um, so it's it's really getting to learn that you know trading is much more than just training a method or a system that works in one type of market condition. And, and unfortunately, a lot of people get attracted by nice, easy adverts that make it look easy and lure them into it. Mm. Um, I know we we've had this discussion before where we get annoyed yeah. by these these adverts because the, the, there is a certain mystique to trading that uh, and the adverts don't help where you know you get the guy with the Lamborghini and the pretty girl sitting on the bonnet and he's a trader um it doesn't doesn't do any justice to to real traders who who have really had to put in hours, thousands of hours of hard work to become successful as traders, makes it out to look a lot easier than it is. And it's it's probably one of the most difficult pursuits you'll ever ever take on, isn't it? It is, but it's a great, it's a great pursuit, especially, you know, it, it's something that's really enjoyable and, and it can pay a lot of money. Yeah. You know, yeah. but yeah. it does take a lot of time to learn. You know, if we look at the most successful trader of the last three decades. Um, arguably it's Jim Simons. Yeah. And he didn't start turning a profit till nearly 12 years into his his decision to become a trader. Um, and then he found his his system and method, which he'd worked on for many years. And uh, away he went with ridiculous returns. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Consistently every single year. Yeah. But it, it you know, it, it is a multi-year journey to get to, I mean, you might make money early, but it doesn't mean you can keep it. And it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to go, trust yourself to make money every single year. Mm. And, it, you know, even if you you do it, you're still going to have years that are going to be red. Okay. You have to yeah. accept that and you have to have um, the ability to withstand those years and the ability to recognize that that is just part of what trading is. You know, it, it's not a straight line. It's going to be, you know, if, if you can make a decent return on average every year, but realize you're going to have some years which are stellar and some years which are really, really poor and, and almost gear yourself up and prepare yourself for that. That is trading. Yeah, sure. One of the things I also enjoyed about uh, being on your program uh, throughout the past year and a bit was that the fact that you encounter so many different types of traders in your work. Uh, you, you deal with traders trading hundreds of millions of dollars. At, at institutions or hedge funds, you deal with commodity traders, but you also deal with guys like myself who are essentially private individuals 
trading their own capital and trying to make a, a success of it. And I, what I thoroughly enjoyed was how you were able to relate backstories to me. Obviously, you, you're very confidential about who all your other clients are, but you would occasionally share stories with me of hedge fund uh, managers and the types of returns that they make. And what I really found interesting about that is that I think, especially for somebody like myself or a retail trader, private individual, you, you don't really know what is a good return. Is it, is it, you know, are there guys out there making hundreds of percent every year? And that's what we should all be striving for. Um, or is it okay to just be making 20% or 15% even per annum? And I found that interesting listening to you is that often what is considered a very good return is not as much as, as people might think. Um, yes, there are guys out there doing hundreds of percent. I mean, I know in, in our previous podcast, uh, you spoke about one of the traders who, who was in the unknown market wizards book, who you had coached and your, your name in fact comes up in that book. And this guy's managed to compound at 300% uh, per annum. But I think you also told me on the, on the program that that was in the beginning. He's, he's not been able to sustain that level of performance at infinitum. It kind of, I guess, brought me back to earth in terms of knowing what is a reasonable performance. But from, from your experience, you know, and I know this is a very broad question, but if, if you're a trader in a hedge fund, you know, what do they consider to be a good year if you're a trader in a hedge fund? Well, okay, so it's a great question. Um, it's highly variable. Depends on the type of hedge fund. Um, you know, a lot of them are really happy if the guy's making 5 to 10% mm. per year. <laughs> Obviously, if their variability is quite low, if their drawdown's low, if they start having bigger drawdowns and greater variability, they want more from them. Mm. R- remember, a lot of hedge funds are given money from, say, pension funds, yeah. large pension funds, or and they want really steady returns that's going to, that they feel they're going to get, you know, they're going to get all their capital back with a, with a much better return than if they stick them into, um, in, into a kind of, I, I don't know, sort of uh, government bonds, which, which hardly pay anything, although that's, that's improving a little bit now, but yeah. there's hardly any yield for government bonds. So, you know, if you've been averaging, even now, you could buy a 10-year US government bond around 2%. Right, or you can average a hedge fund that's going to produce eight to ten percent return a year for you over the next ten years. On average, you're going to take that. Yeah. You know that's a great return. The hedge fund will probably be you'll probably be happy with five percent if they're a fund that you really trust to retain your money. Um, there's other funds which will be much more adventurous. You know, smaller funds make a lot more usually. Um, they'll often trade money for high net worth individuals who have a different risk appetite willing to take more risk um looking for a higher return so there's you know that there's there, there, there's some there's some very different scenarios out there you know you might want to invest in a hedge fund that's say a venture capital fund and you'll, you'll look for much greater returns out there and you'll accept much greater risk so there's a lot of you know there's a lot of differences with the type of fund you're investing in. But if you're doing the sort of trading that you're doing, kind of, and I think a lot of your listeners might be doing, you know, those hedge funds are quite happy to produce 5 to 10%. You know, a, a hedge fund manager that, that produces 15 to 20% regularly would be up there with the very best of them, you know, sort of Tudor Jones, those sort of people. Um, and if you look at the, the performance of people like even Warren Buffett over his entire lifetime, or, or Soros, average is close to 20%. You know, the, these are the, the, the giants of the game over many years. Because yeah. remember, they don't always have good up years. They have underperforming years as well. Yes. Um, and and we, we, get, we tend to see headlines when a hedge fund manager makes 50%, 100%, maybe 200%. You know, but they, they have many years of negative performance as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we can look at someone like Hank Paulson who has that. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's, so there's you, you've there's not many data for hedge funds over many years. You know, who consistently outperform, and 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 it's very different if you're a fund who's running fifteen to twenty billion dollars, 
compared to a fund that's running $500 million. Mm. You know, um, there's never going to be the same sort of performance. Yeah. Um, and they are so different. It's really hard to generalize. Yeah, you sure. Know? The reason so I asked the question, is, for example, I, you know, I deal with a lot of retail traders and I had a, a guy come to me the other day, um, wants to quit his job. He's in South Africa, right? So he's in trading in rands. He's got 400,000 rand, which is to you is about 20,000 pounds. Um, and he wants to replace his 30,000 rand a month salary by trading. The guy's got no experience or very little experience. Uh, so that's 360,000 rand a year, essentially, that he's aiming to try and make or 400,000 rand trading capital. So that's 90% per year. Uh, it, it's just not going to happen. Um, no, he's, ste- and- he's stepping in. He's stepping in the ring with uh, with Mike Tyson. Exactly, exactly. I and think I think he can beat him. Yeah, and the, exactly. And as you've said that so well. And I think anybody listening to this podcast, because I know there are a lot of listeners out there who probably are thinking along these lines. They've got a little bit of money saved up, and they would love to stop whatever day job they're doing and try and do trading for a living. Just listen to what Stephen said there. It's like trying to step into the ring with Mike Tyson. You're going to get your head knocked off. So be very, very realistic about your expectations and don't overestimate your your abilities. There's, um, there's something else. Just want to very quickly bring a, a very quick point there because it's something which I've. Uh, it's, it's not easy to get your head around, but when you're trading for yourself at home, you're using leverage, hmm. and you know. Let, let's just say that someone uses ten to one leverage on their trading, so they start with ten thousand um, dollars, and their broker allows them to take positions equivalent to um, somebody with a hundred thousand dollars. And they make 10% on that. Okay. Mm. They've doubled their initial capital. So they think they're making 100%. But actually, they're making 10%. Yes. The the real capital they're using is not their 10,000, it's 100,000. And the reason why it goes wrong is, you know, if they lose 10% of their 100,000, they've burnt through all their money. Mm. And that's what tends to happen. And people only find out the impacts of leverage when the market turns against them, as it's done for a lot of people recently. Yes. And it's really important to understand. And leverage is what makes it possible to make so much money from trading. So don't. it's not a bad thing. It's just really important to understand its role in your performance and how it's going to impact you you in your trading. Yes. Yeah, leverage. I, I knew a guy who once referred to it as being like a kitchen knife. Leverage is very useful in the right hands very dangerous in the wrong hands but if you know how to use it and you're proficient and you can manage the risks well yes it can be a very useful thing to 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 use yeah in in your dealing with so many different traders is there any one consistent characteristic that you can say that that is uh is common across all of your most successful clients Okay, so I actually asked this question to our guest on the podcast last week, uh, a guy by the name of Sam North. Yes, I listened to that one, yeah. Yeah, the trading school lead for eToro. Yeah. And he said, and and this is perhaps to do with new traders, he said, undoubtedly, they use small size to start with. Kind of the opposite of what you were just talking about with that guy. Mm. He said, the guys who succeed just stay small. Even if they got a lot of money, they're doing $25 tickets to start with because they want to learn. It's all about learning. It's, it's, it's a learning game. Mm. Like we said earlier on, if you want to become a boxer, you do the hard yards in the early years. You learn and learn and learn. You don't put yourself out there in the ring against people who are going to, you know, knock your head off. Yeah. It's the same with trading that, you know, he's exactly right. It's all about learning. And, and I have had people come to me who said, look, you know, I, I've been doing this three, four years. I'm not making money yet, but I'm still going through the learning, the learning part of it. And I recognize that. And I'm fine with that. And I want to work with you now because I think it's an important part of the learning journey. I know the basics. You know, I, I am producing some income, but not the sort of income that I could possibly even think of living off you know, but I want to take it to the next level. So in a way, they're still learning and they recognize it. And in a way, you're always learning. That's one of the important things about it. Um, So I I would say, yeah, that it's, you know, there's that, but there's self-awareness as well. 
Mm. There's really, you know, it's one of the things that I notice with people, how the people who are the most self-aware tend to do much better. Um, and, and they're able to see themselves in the moments where they lose it a little bit or it goes wrong. They're able to just adjust much quicker. Um, and, and again, they'll, they'll you know, they're, they'll, they're happy enough to say, I don't need to show amazing results. You know, I'm, I'm learning the trading. So those those two go go hand in hand. Good risk management is, you know, you can't, you know, you, you can't emphasize the importance of that enough. Mm. Um, so vital for trading success. Um, I mean, there's there's a number of attributes I've noticed across different people. Um, but I, I would say that it probably comes down to those three, always willing to learn, always being self-aware, and really having a good a good risk head on really developing their risk muscle and understanding the effects of leverage, their sizing, um, you know, having a playbook and being aware of their playbook. I suppose as I'm talking, this list is growing and I could go on forever, but I would say those are some of the most, most basic elements. And another one is sort of connected to that is the important, you know, this individual said he wants to give up his trading, you know, his, his career and start trading. Yeah. I tell people to to have another income, mm. especially in the early years. You know, you're not going to be earning money from trading. You don't want to be earning money from trading because you want to be growing your capital. You want to be reinvesting it. Um, and you want to be able to survive periods where it's not working. Um, if it's going to be a multi-year learning thing, then, you know, if you can have another income, you know, and it, it, it stops you having to, you know, eat what you kill. You know, and even now I know a lot of people who trade many years, you know, retail traders who many years into their career, they offer another service like a mentoring service or a, yeah. a subscription service or a training service or an analysis service yeah. to just bring some extra income in so they don't have to rely on their income from trading, which means that they can do the right things and not worry that they might not be able to put food on the table next next year. Mm. That's exactly um, myself. I mean, that's why I run a, a subscription service and some trading courses and some mentorship and these podcasts and do a bit of work other, you know, with provide a bit of analysis to some other firms here and there because exactly that reason. I don't want the pressure of having to know that my ability to trade profitably or not is what's going to put food on the table at the end of the month because that puts a huge amount of pressure on you if you if you're entirely dependent on trading income for your for your life to continue. Um, it's it's just it too much. It, it makes it nigh on impossible. Yeah, it, it really does. One thing I'd like to add to your list is something that you said to me. You you put this as a post-it note on your screens when you were a trader. Learn to love your losses. Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> and that that throws a lot of people out. It, it, it seems on the face of it, it makes no sense at all. Who loves their losses? Yeah. Um, but th there's a context to that in that. I, I got to a point where I really feared my losses. The the fear of them was was owning me and, and stopping me putting trades on or getting me to finesse a trade. And and I realized that, you know, my losses were a big part of my success. You know, the the way I traded required sometimes sitting through a long barren period of losses. And if I wasn't going to have those losses, I was never going to find the wins. So it, it was really important for me to to come to terms with with losing and and not seeing losses as the enemy. Mm. And that's where I sort of came up with that phrase, which I stuck on my desk. And, and it just reminded me that, you know, of course, I didn't love losses. No one does. But <laughs> it changed my mindset at key yeah. moments. It shifted it. Yeah. And it got me to look at them through a different lens. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, I, I love that. Um, it also goes along with the saying of um, the best loser wins. And, yeah. I, and, and I think to the, to the point where you say, oh, nobody loves their losses. Well, yes, you do when you see that your loss would have been much, much bigger had you not taken that stop loss and cut that loss short when it was still small. So then you absolutely do love your losses. So Yeah, it might, it might, might have been better to, for me to phrase it, learn to love small losses. Yeah, that's it. Because small losses are part of the business. Yeah, if it doesn't become a small loss, it becomes a big loss. Yeah, that's it. And then it, that, that lands you in all sorts of bad, bad ways. Um, 
Stephen, I'm conscious of the time and we've been talking for nearly an hour, which is more time than what I asked of you for this podcast. So I'm going to wrap it up shortly. But last question, uh, your your uh, trader performance coaching program for an individual like myself, it's a fairly meaningful financial investment to make in oneself. Um, if you're in a big organization or a, or a hedge fund, perhaps it's not. But um for an individual, it's you know it's it's a big investment to make in yourself. Some might come to you, and I know some have come to you with this and said, "Okay, fine, you know this is the price, but now what's my return going to be? What's the ROI, the return on investment, likely to be of this coaching program?" Yeah, I, I think it's quite a narrow-minded way of looking at things, but I guess you you get that question from time to time. So what is your answer to someone who comes along and asks you that, you know, I'm going to spend all of this money for you to be my coach. What's my ROI likely to be? And is it going to be worth me spending this money with you? What do you say to that? Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. It's something which I think everyone has to consider. Um, I, 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 I do actually try and put some people off coaching if I think, you know, I do sometimes have people coming up to me and saying, look, you know, I, I, I'm trading with $10,000 and I'm sort of thinking it's probably not realistic that you're going to turn that into a serious amount of money. And yet you're considering spending a lot of it on a coach, you know, or, or a chunk of it on a coach. And I think it's a really good idea, but you need to, you need to, I think you need to be serious about trading. You know, right. it's, it's very, I mean, how long is it going to take to grow 10,000 pounds? or $10,000 into a reasonable amount of money to trade. It's going to take, you know, you're going to have to take silly risks. Um, so I know it sounds strange, but I, I do sometimes put people off. And then if they come back, I know they're really committed to trading. They're really serious. Um, mm. I do put some people off who are perhaps too new because I think it's it's probably more important at first to learn whether you're going to be at a, whether you're going to be in the game for a long time. You've got to learn the basics. You've got to learn, you know, understand the different analytical methods and understand the market that you're in and find a, a system or method or explore them, um, understand how to take risks. So I, I do think coaching is not something you necessarily do at the beginning. It's something you do, maybe you work with a mentor first yeah. who shows you or some mentors will show you a method. Coaching is is probably for people who are then looking to take it to a higher level. But it, it is a question, do I invest in it? I get people to look at it as a call option in themselves. I think that's the best way you can do it. I'm going to spend the money. At the very minimum, I should make back what I get from it if it doesn't really work. At the very maximum, it could explode my trading into ways that I never possibly imagined or, or thought about. Um, and that's happened for a lot of people who I've worked with over the years. Um, and it happened for me. I, I, I was in a coaching program. Um, 13 years into my career, actually a coaching program, which has now become the coaching program that I deliver. And I, I, I work with the uh, coach that I worked with then. Um, now I, I was 13 years into my career. Um, the, the bank I was working for offered to try this trial, this coaching, and they asked me to be, um, the first participant in it. And, um, I didn't think it was necessary if I was honest at the time, um, <laughs> big ego of a trader came out. Um, but I tried it. I found it useful, interesting. Did it blow me away at the time? Not at all. Um, but boy, did it make a difference in the 10 years afterwards? You know, it, it catalyzed a transition for me that started with that coaching program. And my, you know, I, I kind of call my, my trading career over the 25 years, there was the pre-coaching career and the post-coaching career. And the post-coaching career was a whole different level of performance. And, you know, 10 years later, at a transitional point in my career, I decided to, to move into coaching and start, started working with that coach who became my teacher for the first few years um, of what coaching is, whilst trading for myself still. And then I started working with other people. And uh, I still do a little bit of trading on the side, but not seriously anymore. Um but, you know, I, I love doing this. And I knew, I mean, the return on that equity that they invested in that coaching was probably thousands of times. If I'd have bought that coaching, the return for me personally, which would have been in terms of bonus, 
that I got from my work would have been many hundreds of times. Um, for the company that invested it, it was many thousands of times. Um, so it, it, it's it's useful to look at it as a call option. I think that's the best yeah. way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, as a, someone who's done your trader performance coaching program over the last year, I can certainly attest to the fact that it's it's been money very well spent. I, I consider it to be one of the best investments I've ever made in, in my career in terms of investing in myself. And uh, so I can highly recommend consulting with a coach and, and working with a coach if you are going to take your, your trading seriously. Um, and Stephen, I'm looking forward to working with you more. I know we won't be working as closely going forward, but you kind of offer a, a quarterly follow-up, which I'm going to be taking you up on uh, to, to kind of keep the headspace or keep the, 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 keep the coaching going at a bit of a distance. And I'm thoroughly looking forward to doing that with you in, in the year to come and in the years to come potentially, uh, because I really do see the value in what you you're doing and it's it's been very transformational for me as a as a trader so that's it Stephen. we've come to the end of our time um, it's been a super hour speaking to you thank you very much for giving up this much of your time and uh for those listeners who who don't know Stephen or would like to follow him um alpha at alpha mind 101 is your twitter handle and yep. as i said you run the alpha mind podcast which is superb. If you enjoy this podcast, you're going to enjoy the Alpha Mind podcast way more because the guests that we that, that you and, and Mark get on that podcast are some of the best in the business. And the, every single podcast in your series has been phenomenal. I've made a point of listening to all of them. Um, I've listened to some of them two or three times even. They're, they're that good. So uh, if you're a listener to this podcast, make a point of listening to, to the Alpha Mind podcast as well. Stephen, with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Thanks again for your time. It's, it's very much appreciated. And I look forward to chatting to you again soon. Brilliant. And thank you very much. A pleasure to be on the, uh, on, on the uh, Garth McKenzie podcast. <laughs> thank you very much, Stephen. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking With Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.